Let's open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Chapter 14 of Genesis is an intriguing chapter that includes the account of an international conflict into which Abram is drawn. And then it is followed by two very contrasting encounters that this patriarch has with two kings as he returns home from battle. So you have the battle itself, the international conflict itself, and then you have two encounters. And it's actually the two encounters that we'll be spending most of our time on today. By this time, Abram has become a major player in the ancient Near East. He wasn't a king, and he had not achieved at this point worldwide political significance, but he was an important tribal chief and a man who should be taken seriously. The promise of God to make Abram's name great, in this sense, is already starting to gel by Genesis chapter 14. The first 16 <coughs> verses of this chapter describe the war and Abram's victory over a very powerful ancient coalition. And then in verses 17 through 24, these verses relate the interaction between Abram and the kings of Salem and Sodom. The conflict outlined in the first part of the chapter was essentially over rebellion by kings that lived in the region of the Jordan Valley, the area from Damascus to generally the area from Damascus to south of Damascus to where the Dead Sea exists today. And a powerful king named Kedar Leomer, who ruled that particular area that we, or the particular area that we now call Persia, and several of his um, compatriots. The kings of the Jordan Valley were not so much kings of nations. Actually, there weren't really that many kings of nations back then. Kings were kings of city-states. And the more powerful the city-state, for example, like Athens or Sparta later would become very powerful city-states. So we don't have national boundaries as we do today, like the United States of America or Russia or whatever. They were regions that people ruled. Well, you have these kings of these city-states of the Jordan Valley, and um, think of them as, think of them almost as very powerful mayors, but, but they would have called themselves a king, because international boundaries weren't really so much known at that time. People didn't have the ability to, to defend certain international boundaries like they do at, at this time, and regions and nations were sometimes poorly defined geographically, but think city-states when you think the battle that will occur here. The narrative reports in verse 4 that the cities of the Jordan Valley had served Kedarliomer for 12 years, meaning that they had paid a tribute to him, which was typically a monetary sum in the ancient world that would, in essence, bribe one nation not to attack another. For example... Let's say the United States was what we are not. When we conquer a nation, we typically rebuild them. We spend a lot of United States tax dollars, and we rebuild the nation to make sure that they're even better than they were before. That wasn't something that happened in the ancient world. And by the way, sometimes people try to, to equate the United States with some ancient empires of the past. Uh, don't do that. Um, we don't have the characteristics of an empire in that sense. We rebuild countries. We rebuilt Germany after, after World War II. Ancient Rome would have let Germany rot after they had conquered them. And then they would have ex extracted a tribute from the people who were left over. 
And this tribute was, would be paid by the weaker nation to the stronger nation on a regular basis to keep the stronger nation from going and whooping up on the weaker, weaker nation again. So that's why I say it was essentially a bribe to get you not to, uh, to, get, to get a stronger nation not to attack a weak, weaker nation in future years. Well, for 12 years, these kings of the Jordan Valley kept up their end of the bargain. Apparently, Kedarliomer had either defeated them before or had threatened to defeat them. So he said, if you pay me this tribute, if you serve me for this period of time, we won't come and attack you. Well, somebody got the great idea in the Jordan Valley. We've been paying this tribute for too long. Let's see what happens if we don't pay. Well, they saw what happens when they didn't pay. And so Kedarliomer, who was the king of the region known today, as, or a little bit later in history, as Persia, he, he has, amasses a coalition and then comes after the kings of the Jordan Valley. So after the kings of the Jordan Valley rebel in the 13th year, it takes Kedarliomer and his, and his group about a year to get ready. In the 14th year, he gets together with three other kings of that region. One of the kings is a, the king of a region that later became known as Babylon. So you, if you know your geography, you can see this is a fairly decent distance away. The other two kings, we really don't know where they were from, or the other kings we don't. So he gets together with four kings that are going to line up against five. The situation that is described here is not all that unusual in historical accounts of the ancient Near East. Um, some ancient accounts relate that powerful kings would typically, on a regular basis, invade territories that were not as powerful as them so that they could keep the money flowing into their own treasury. That's how nations did it in the ancient world. Again, that's very different than the way we do it now, so we can't think in terms of the United States and Iraq or Afghanistan or anything, we go and rebuild those countries. It would be as though if we, it would be like this. It would be as though we went and attacked Iraq, left them in a terrible state except for their oil, rebuilt their oil refineries, and then took all of their oil, leaving them poor. That's what Rome would have done. That's what Kenar the Omer would have done. And that's kind of what's going on here. The coalition of Kenar the Omer is victorious in the initial part of the campaign, and then lines up in the final part of the campaign, once he gets far enough to the south, he lines up against the kings of Sodom and the, kings of, uh, the king of Gomorrah and their three allies in the valley of Siddim. Now, we can't say with certainty exactly where this battle took place, but it's generally thought that it was somewhere near the southern part of what is now the Dead Sea. So verse 9, let your eyes glance to that verse. So verse 9 sets the stage for this final battle, four kings against five. Kadarli Omer and his three buddies have swept down through the king's highway on into the region of the Jordan Valley, and now we have the climactic, valley of this, uh, climactic battle of this uh, campaign. The five kings of the Jordan Valley prove no match for the four, which, by the way, was typical of what happened in the ancient world. Usually the underdog did not win. And they don't win this time either. The, the four kings, which are more powerful than the five, the four kings defeat the five. And people start running. And some of the people that run fall into these tar pits and apparently perish. It, the text almost makes it look like the king of Sodom fell into those pits as well, but we, we see him a little bit later, so he must not have. So far, so good for Kedarliomer in this powerful coalition from the Persia-Babylon region. So far, everything is going just according to plan. They're cutting through the enemy like a hot knife through butter. There's been no resistance. They apparently probably hadn't taken that many casualties, and then everything is fine. But then they make a mistake. And you know what they did? 
instead of just leaving it alone, and they don't even know they're making this mistake, but they take a man from Sodom and his possessions and presumably his family by the name of Lot. They take him captive. And now, as they say in the movies, it gets personal for Abram. Before then, it was no problem. They could do just about whatever they wanted to because Abram understood that that region was exceedingly evil anyway. I mean, if he was sitting back getting reports from CNN or Fox, he was probably saying, well, that's a bad thing, but they probably had it coming to him. But not as soon as they take Lot with them. As soon as they take Lot, they've made a mistake, and uh, there's a problem. Now, when we last left Lot, and this was almost a month ago in terms of our timing here in, uh, on Sunday morning services, when we last left Lot, we saw that Lot wasn't behaving very well. We saw that he was behaving very selfishly. And that he took what should have been Abram's, at least the prerogative should have been Abram's. Remember that when, when the, the, their, their herdsmen were fighting against one another and, and Abram says, listen, I don't want to fight here. You, you take what you want. I'll, I'll, I'll take whatever's left over. Lot should have said, no, Uncle Abram, you're the patriarch. You're the one to whom the promise has been given. You take whatever you want. I'll take whatever's left over. But Lot doesn't do that. You remember? And he takes what he thinks is the choicest land. As we left last time, Abram had gone up into the high mountain and, and God had shown him all the lands that would be his, reiterating that God was going to bless Abram. Well, now the next time we hear of Lot, Lot's been taken captive, and Abram's going to go out to get him. Now, if you would have thought, or if you did think, that somehow Abram was going to hold a grudge against his nephew for what he had done to him, then you'd have been wrong. Because Abram's not that kind of guy. That would have been the response of a lesser person, a person who had no forgiveness Forgiveness is an extremely important concept in the Bible. God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of other people. Well, Abraham knew how to forgive because he wasn't just a, a brand new believer. He wasn't an immature believer. He was a maturing believer. So if we were to have thought that Abraham would have held a grudge against his nephew and said, just take him. He's got it coming to him. I don't want to see him anymore anyway. Do you know what he did to me? If you knew what he did to me, you'd be happy that he was gone too. But Abraham doesn't do that. His instinctive response was to help someone who is in need. And that's what he does with his family member, Lot. So we pick up the narrative now in verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, the brother of Anner, and these were allies with Abram. And then in verse 15... I'm sorry, in verse 14. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. Abram is the first person ever to be called a Hebrew in, the, in this text. The term Hebrew has been used in one of the genealogies, but he's the first person to be called a Hebrew. The term Hebrew means essentially one who crosses over, like one who would be crossing over a river. That's what the term Hebrew means. It, and it also could be understood, if we were to put it in today's terminology, perhaps an immigrant. That would have been another way you could have put the term Hebrew. So he's the first person that is called that. Now, Abram had established, and the reason that he was living, and I think this is why the, the, the term Hebrew is introduced here, it reminds us that while that land belongs to Abram as far as God's concerned, 
He hasn't taken possession of that land, and he won't. He's still going to live in tents all throughout his life. So he has made alliances, perhaps even a treaty, with the people that live in that region that Abram's living in, and these are called the Amorites. They'll come up a little bit later in the story. That's why I bring it up now. So Abram has an alliance with the people that he is living among. Even though it's his land, by God's divine right, he still makes an alliance with the, uh, with the Amorites. Now, we don't know how many men that the Amorites contributed to Abram's 318. Abram committed 318 trained men, which means he had a whole lot more than that. He wasn't just taking a ragtag bunch out there with him. He took 318 men who were trained. And then the Amorites, his allies, supplied some more. There's great discussion about how many people did the Amorites bring, because after all, if he's going to defeat a coalition of four kings, he's going to need a lot of men, isn't he? No, maybe not so fast. Maybe not so fast. Because Abram is going with God on his side. So really, Abram doesn't need any men. God could have done it like he did, like the angel of Jehovah did that night where he wipes out 185,000 Assyrians just like that. With no help from Abram or anybody, anybody else for that matter. Any of the Hezekiah, any of the Jews. So while it's, it's interesting to, to think, I wonder how many people the Amorites contributed so that their force, maybe their force was 1,000 or 2,000. I don't care. Because it wasn't the size of the force that really mattered here. The idea is, the, the focus of this chapter, what I want to make sure you leave here with today, is to understand that God was with Abram. And if, as Paul put it later, if God's with you, who can be against you? With you right now, I don't know what you're fighting. I know what some of you are fighting, actually. Some of you are fighting terrible diseases. Some of you are fighting incredible interpersonal conflicts. Some of you have lost your job. But I've got to tell you, if God is with you, who can be against you? We look at at the national landscape today, and we say, oh my goodness, we're not going to make it another five years if we keep going this way. Well, I'm going to tell you something. We're missing the boat when we start thinking of exclusively financial economic solutions or political solutions or military solutions, although those are on the table and we need to pay attention to those things. The solution that we need for our, our country today, the United States of America in the year 2010, is a spiritual solution to the where we make sure God is on our side. And if God is on our side, I don't care who's against us. You know what? I really don't care how mad Osama bin Laden gets at us if God is on our side. But if God's not on our side, then you better be scared. You better be reading the Drudge Report every day to find exact, exactly what's going to happen to you. Because we're toast. So, you you see, you can't control some of the things that are done from the White House or from the Senate or from the Congress or the Secretary of State. But I do know this. You can control your own spiritual life. And it's got to start with you. It can't start with somebody else. You know, sometimes we'll do a sermon and and I I joke about it, but it's actually a very real thing. And and there'll be some convicting part of the sermon because I I watch you. I do see you. Even when I'm looking over here, I look back real quick. I watch (laughs) you. And sometimes there'll be a little bit of this. You hear that? You hear that? I'm going to get the tape of this one. We're going we're to play it in the car next Sunday morning and come to church. I want to make sure you heard that. No, that, that's cute, and husbands and wives can sometimes get away with that. I wouldn't try it too often. But, but you know what? When it comes to national, national deliverance, it's got to start with you. It's got to start with your walk with God. It's got to start with American Christianity. We're talking about American national deliverance. It's got to start with our individual spiritual lives. 
Because as Oz Guinness wrote a few years back, American Christianity is an inch deep and a mile wide, and I'm glad that it's a mile wide. But we need to be more than just an inch deep. We've got to be, we've got to be more than just a dating service. And much, much, much more than just a Christian country club. More than just an entertainment, a vehicle of entertainment. We've got to be more than that. We've got to be a light to the world. And I've got to tell you, by and large, American Christianity is not doing its job. We're, we are not, as a group, as a body of Christ, not doing our job. So it's no wonder to me why things are going in the wrong direction. Now, believe me, I'm not saying don't vote and don't pay attention to politics. You, you better. That's your responsibility. You, you have a responsibility to be a good citizen. But I'm saying if you want this country to turn around, if you want to provide something for your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your children are the ones that haven't been born yet, then turn your own spiritual life around first. Take it seriously first. And that's just on a national level. But I've got to tell you, whatever it is you're battling today, and I know some of you are battling terrible, terrible things. Just remember this. God's on your side. Nobody can be against you. Even in the darkest moments of the battle, when, you, when you're ready to quit, and when you're ready to say, God must not love me anymore, he does. And if he's, if he's with you, no one and no thing can be against you. Stick it out because he loves you. No matter what the outcome, and the outcome may not be what you think it should be. You know, even if the worst happens in our, from a national standpoint, and we don't have the outcome that I would like to see happen in the years to come, God's still with us. Now, he may not be with us as a nation, but he's still with you as an individual. He's going to get you through it. So there's really no cause for despair even then. Now, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you're going to be rescued from it totally. Look at Jeremiah. He woke up in the pit one day after Jerusalem is burned, but he still had his happiness. You know, you know what he said after that? Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord's mercies are renewed every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He wasn't saying that sitting at a breakfast table with a nice lace cloth with croissants and strawberries and cream. That's not when he said great is thy faithfulness. He said great is thy faithfulness in the middle of despair. You know why? Because he knew the Lord was with him. Now Abram knew the Lord was with him. So yes, he had more than 318 men, but that's not why he won the battle. We don't have to try to think of these secular solutions. He won the battle because he had a majority of one, and that one was the creator of the universe. Remember that when you're facing the problems that you face this coming week. And believe me, I, I pray for you because I know some of you are facing incredible problems. But God is with you, and if he is, who can be against you? Now what happens? Abram, Abram attacks this force. He pursues them quite a, bit of, quite a distance, actually. All the way up to Dan, which is on the very north part of Israel. If you recall your geography, Sodom and, Gomorrah are, Sodom and Gomorrah are way south. By the time he pursues them, he's all the way up north in Dan. So it takes a little bit of time to get there. And when he pursues them, he attacks them by night. He separates his forces, forces and, and, and really has a, a rousing victory. He routes them by night. And then to make sure that Kedar Leomer got the message... Abram's army, Abram's little coalition, chases Kedar Leomer and the bunch all the way back north of Damascus. Now, if you look at a map, that's over, that's over 50 miles. That's one thing to chase somebody down 50 miles in a Humvee. It's another thing to do it by foot because it's 50 miles there. And guess what it is back? It's 50 miles back. That's right. So it's a long way, but he wanted to make sure they got the point. You're messing with the wrong folks here. You took the wrong guy. He took Abram's nephew, 
And Abram's the man of the promise, and you don't mess with the man of the promise. Even though Lot may not have been walking in fellowship. Are you starting to get the point? Or do I need to spell it out? You don't mess with the man of the promise, even if some of the descendants of the promise aren't behaving in the way we'd like for them to behave on any given day. Let me just be blunt. Don't mess with Israel. It's never a good public policy for us to do anything that's going to harm the ally of Israel in the, in the, in the Near East right now, in, in the Middle East. And if we, if we insist on such a course of action, then we're going to pay the price. Even, even though you may say, well, Israel's not a, a Christian nation. No, it's not. But they're still descendants of Abraham. We need to be careful there as a Christian. Every now and then, it doesn't happen often, but every now and then somebody will come to me and they'll have extremely anti-Semitic literature that they want me to read or to incorporate somehow in, into the sermons. It's not going to happen. It ain't going to happen. If I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of being overly cautious with regard to the descendants of Abraham. We're not getting anti-Semitic. So if that's a tendency that you have, you're in the wrong place. One of, the, one of the very few things, there's only been a couple things I've ever had to ask people not to come back for, and that's one of them. So just save it and give it to somebody else, but don't give it to anybody here because we're not going to be that way. There's no call for anti-Semitism. There's no call for any kind of racism to begin with anyway. It's not a Christian virtue. Not at all. So in the process of this battle, Lot, uh, Lot is recovered. Abram gets what he came for Lot and presumably his family, although the family's not specifically mentioned here, but you assume they didn't just leave the daughters and, and so forth behind. And the possessions of Lot, the possessions of the people of Sodom, the other people of Sodom, and, uh, and everything that had been taken. Now, it's been said, and I think rightly so, that we are all most vulnerable to defeat right after a great victory. You've heard that before. Don't know who the first person to say that was, but they're right. And they're also right in the spiritual realm as well. We are, all, we are always most vulnerable to defeat right after a great spiritual victory. And, and that's what we have to watch for with Abram here. He's just had a great spiritual victory. Now he has an opportunity. He's got an opportunity to either build upon that victory or to fall flat on his face. And so that's why I said perhaps the most important part of this chapter is the interaction between Abram and these two kings. Now, Abram meets the challenge, and he comes away triumphant. It's interesting when we study these patriarchal narratives, especially the ones of Abram, we, we see high points and low points and high points and low points, but on the, on the whole, Abram is a very faithful man. On the whole, he is a mature and maturing believer, as we see in these texts. Now, two individuals are going to come out and meet Abram after this battle. After he's chased them all the way to north of Damascus, he's on his way back, and two individuals will come out and meet him. And these two individuals are very significant because, again, this is going to provide Abram an opportunity to fall flat on his face when it comes to the spiritual victory he's just had. I mean, he's got a great victory here. He counted on the Lord. He, he presumably uh, took down Kedar Leomer in these, this powerful coalition with a lesser force. Because God is with him, now he's got a choice to make. Is he going to build on that victory, or is he going to fall flat on his face? Well, let's look and see what happens. In verse 17, Then after his return from the defeat of Kedar Leomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom 
went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Now, now the king of Sodom is just mentioned right now. We know that he's on his way out there. We're going to pick up the narrative now with the second king, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Sodom's, the king of Sodom is going to come back in later. So if we can kind of picture this, he's on his way back. The king of Sodom apparently wasn't taken captive, but he's on his way out to meet Abram. But meanwhile, we're introduced to a very important person in the Bible, a man by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, or the contrast between Melchizedek and the king of Salem, could not have been more stark. Sodom was an area that we've already been told in the text was exceedingly evil. And we're going to find out later, if you hadn't read ahead, Sodom is going to be destroyed by God. You know that already. Melchizedek, on the other hand, is a man who is so righteous. As a matter of fact, his, his name even means king of righteousness. He's so righteous that Abram is going to recognize him, watch, as his spiritual superior. Even though Abram was the man of the promise, he's going to recognize at that moment that Melchizedek is his spiritual superior and, and pay him a tithe. So we break into the narrative now at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Showing him hospitality, showing Abram hospitality. Now he was a priest of God most high. In verse 19, and, bless, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then the text tells us, He, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. Melchizedek is one of the most interesting people in the biblical record. And while our time this morning, we only have about six or so minutes to go, but our time this morning won't allow us to go into all the biblical record about Melchizedek, I think it's going to be helpful to us just to have a, at least a few pieces of information about this very special person, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Salem is most likely a reference to Jerusalem. At least that's what uh, Old Testament scholars understand. His name, again, means king of righteousness. Melchizedek is both a king and a priest, which makes him an Old Testament type of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was also a king and a priest. In the book of Hebrews, it states that this man Melchizedek was without mother or father. And that, most likely, just simply means that in a book given over to genealogies, for example, like Genesis... This man appears on the scene without any notice. We, we haven't met him before. He's not mentioned in any of the genealogies that have been given to us. It doesn't mean, like, like uh, for example, say our Jehovah Witnesses friends say, since he didn't have any mother or father, then Melchizedek is, is actually Jesus himself. Well, no, Melchizedek is not Jesus. Melchizedek was a real person, flesh and blood, that came a long time before Jesus Christ was ever born. He is a type of Christ because he's a king and a priest. But don't misunderstand Hebrews in that way. It's just saying that, that there's no genealogy given of Melchizedek. He's a bit of a mystery man in that sense. It's also interesting to speculate as to whether Melchizedek's knowledge of the true God was received by some oral tradition. How did he find out? We know how Abram became a believer. God spoke to him. But how did Melchizedek become a believer? We, we don't know. Um, but it's interesting that when these two men get together, Melchizedek blesses Abram and then blesses the God of Abram, who is his God as well. But then Melchizedek receives this offering from Abram. So at this moment, there's an implication here that Abram considers Melchizedek 
his spiritual superior, which tells me a lot about how God worked in the ancient world. We just know some of the people that were believers in the ancient world. The Bible is not an exhaustive record of every person who ever became a believer. There were, there were other people. We see that even in, in Numbers with Balaam. How did Balaam understand anything about God? He came from a faraway land. God is bigger than what we give him credit for sometimes. You know, so the Bible is a limited record of specific people, prim- primarily Abraham and his descendants, especially the Old Testament. It's not a record of everybody who's ever believed. So this tells me there were other people who worshipped the true God at the time of Abram. And Melchizedek was certainly one of them. So Melchizedek blesses Abram and then blesses God. Now, again, we've talked about this before, but especially in the Psalms, sometimes that can be confusing. But the Psalms will, the psalmist may say, I bless God at all times. That always bothered me. What do you mean you bless God? I know about God blessing me. That means he's giving me some sort of undeserved favor. He's, he's giving me something that I need to live my life on a daily basis. But when, I understand that part. I understand God blessing me, but what does it mean for me to bless God? It means that I'm worshiping God. So this is a worship service. Melchizedek is blessing Abram. He's bringing him this food material so he can fill his belly. But they get together and worship it. Isn't that just like Abram? Everywhere he goes, he builds, builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. He preaches Yahweh. So these two men get together because they've got something in common. And they worship together, which is what people who are uh, believers in the same Lord ought to be doing. He gives them a tenth of all, which is uh, called here a tithe. The thing we need to note is that in Melchizedek, Abram finds a true spiritual brother. He blesses both Abram and the God Most High that they both worship. There's a kinship here. And he recognizes the source of Abram's victory as God himself. Melchizedek had it right. Abram then gives Melchizedek a tenth of the goods that have been recovered. And now, after having worshipped, after having spiritual kinship, Now Abram is ready to face the king of Sodom, who's going to tempt him to do something the wrong way, which might have been legal, technically legal, but tempt him to do something the wrong way. Later on in the text of Genesis, we're going to see Abram do something that is technically legal under the laws of their day, but is wrong before God. That's how he tries to handle this situation without having an heir. He'll fail that test, but he passes this one. Let's look at what happens here. Now in verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. So Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God, the most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal, thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. On air, Eskol, memory, let them take their share. In other words, the Amorites, his coalition. Abraham has a great spiritual victory here. He turns down money. Now, how many people you know do that? But this was money that was going to cause him to have, to have the, or they would cause the reputation of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, to diminish in stature. And if that was what was going to happen, if Sodom, the king of Sodom was going to say, I'm the one that made him powerful. I'm the one that made him rich. If it was going to do anything, anything at all, 
to diminish the testimony that Abram had for Yahweh. He didn't want any part of it. So you, you see how the narrative is, is set up. He has this, may I call it a worship service with Melchizedek. He gets right spiritually, and then he faces this other test. You know, that's an act of God's grace. God designed us to live in community, to worship with other people. Not, not as a crutch. The Holy Spirit's the one that empowers us. I know that. You know that. But God designed us to live not in isolation, but he designed us to live in community. God brings along certain people, certain believers, at certain times in your life and my life. They come along and put their arm around you and give you a word of encouragement or a word of advice or a word of discouragement if you're going the wrong direction. He designed it that way. And, and true, we, we ultimately make our own decisions. We can't blame the person that came along for not giving us good advice. We make our own decisions, and we're spo- responsible for that. But we don't live our lives, or at least we're not designed to live our lives, separated from the Christian community. We see it here in this text in Genesis 14, how important it was for Abram, before he, before he has this great spiritual challenge, to run into Melchizedek. It's no accident that Melchizedek comes out. And they meet and they fellowship together and they are spiritually strengthened one to another. We should not attempt to live our lives separated from the Christian community. We were not designed to do so. Now, it saddens me. I'll be perfectly frank with you. It saddens me when I think of the number of people that I know, friends of mine, who have decided that they don't need consistent fellowship that is yours by virtue of association with the local church. Many of these folks purport and are well-versed in the scriptures. But sadly, they're not as well-versed as they think they are. And they're my friends, but I've got to tell you, you, if you happen to be listening to this someday in the future, I feel for you because the very scriptures that you claim to be an expert in You're violating, forsaking not the assembly of yourselves together as the manner of some is. We are designed to live in community. And I know sometimes, some places, churches are hard to find. I know that. And I talk to people from other parts of the country, other parts of the world. They say, well, I've visited several churches. None of them are any good. Have you ever thought that maybe if you'd go ahead and attend that church and and you're spiritual, maybe it just got better by a little bit? Have you ever thought that instead of just running away? And attending, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of Bible studies that are out there, and they're all fine and good. Parachurch ministries are fine and good, provided they're a supplement and not a substitute for the local church. They're a, a supplement and not a substitute. Just because you go to a Bible study during the week doesn't mean that God's given you permission to skip church on Sunday morning. Now, we don't take role. It's, okay. it's between you and the Lord. But I've got to tell you this. We're designed to live in community, and that community, biblically, is the community that's structured by the local church, where there is a leadership structure. And I know why people do it, because there's a lot of Bible, independent Bible studies, there's no leadership structure. You can do what you want, you can say what you want, and everybody's got their own opinion. And if you do something wrong, there's no leadership structure to call you on it. So that's why a lot of modern Christians don't want anything to do with the local church, but it's not biblical. And if you claim to be biblical, realize that we were supposed to live in community. Don't run away from community. Embrace it. And I know you may be uh, someone who, who is a bit of an introvert. There's all different kind of personality types in a community. 
And I know sometimes people don't like one community, so they go to another community. Well, find one and stick with it. Invest yourself in it. And let the other people in the community invest themselves in you. So that you might be better prepared to handle the spiritual battles when they come. I love John Wayne. He's my favorite movie star of all time. I cannot think of a person who was a better actor ever than John Wayne. Amen to that? No, you're not going to do it. My wife and I have a little bit of a disagreement about that, but I'll let you, if someone could come alongside her and counsel her about that later, it would be good. She needs to participate in the Christian community. But I think John Wayne is one of my favorite actors of all time. I mean, nobody acted like John Wayne, right? Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. But, but one of the things that made John Wayne John Wayne was he always went at it alone. I mean, sometimes he'd have a sidekick, and they were some of the same guy. Walter Brennan, remember that? Dean Martin. But really, at the end of the day, John could have taken care of it by himself. I mean, I know he could have. Clint Eastwood comes close. I, I, I should say, if there's a second one, it would be Clint. Well, he's no Rock Hudson, I guess. But, but you know, that's, that's a problem because there's really too many people try to live John Wayne Christianity. And while I like the Westerns, going it alone is not the way it should be gone. You know, God didn't design it that way. He designed you to live with other Christians. And, and if, you have, if, if you're listening to the sound of my voice and you're having trouble in another region of the nation or another country perhaps, don't give up. You know, keep at it. And if the, the, the church you're, you're going to, if you're not that happy with it, at least stick with it and try to make it better by your very presence being there. Don't run. Stay there. And, and allow other believers to minister to you. It's... It's the way God designed it. We need our Christian brothers and sisters. And it bothers, something, it bothers me almost even have to say that, that I need someone else. Well, I need it because God the Holy Spirit designed it that way. Now, again, ultimately, I realize the biblical principle of pneumatology. God the Holy Spirit is my mentor. He's the one that empowers me. And if I have to ever find myself on a deserted island like Tom Hanks in Castaway, I, I should be able to make it. But not many of us are designed to live on those deserted islands. So let's be careful about that. So after Abram's meeting with Melchizedek, he meets with the king of Sodom. And there's a great chance to fall flat on his face here, but he doesn't do it. Knowing what he knows about Sodom and this king, there's no way he's going to take a, an ancient dime from this man. He'll allow for the food that they've already eaten. It's not like he's going to pay him. He's not going to get all Sodom's people and all the goods back and then say, here, let me give you some money for the food that we ate. He's at least going to take the food and he allows for the Amorites, because they are not Yahweh worshippers anyways, he allows for them to take a portion of the booty. But he takes nothing himself. Because Abram was maturing in his faith, he was interested in the blessing of God, not interested in being enriched by evil men. That's one of the things that makes Abram great. Sometimes we think money will solve everything. It won't. Money's a fine thing. It's a medium of exchange. It's a wonderful thing to have, and, and I hope you have an abundance of it, provided it's received in an honorable way. If it's not received in an honorable way, I hope you don't get it. I hope I don't get it, because it's going to hurt you, not help you. Material blessings can be a wonderful thing, but not when they're acquired at the expense of personal integrity. If God wanted to bless Abram in a material way, then fine. But Abram had no desire for material blessing gained apart from his relationship with Yahweh. And it should go without saying, 
the same should be true of each one of us. The realization that true prosperity, genuine prosperity, real prosperity, comes only from God, is a major step on the path to a mature relationship with Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Abram. I thank you for the, the account of his encounter with Melchizedek, which allowed him the spiritual strength to then encounter this evil king from Sodom. Father, we are faced with temptations every day to do perhaps a right thing in a wrong way, or things that may be technically legal, but, but that are not legal in your eyes. Help us to seek your blessing. Help us to seek that which you want us to have. Not to follow our own lust patterns, but to help us to seek what you truly want us to have. And we know we'll be happy then. This is hard for all of us. But thank you for the example of Abram. We know it can be done. And we thank you for the Christian community. I thank you for this church and, and the churches around the United States and around the world that, that provide an opportunity for, for Christians to fellowship with one another. And I thank you for this particular local church and the way you've blessed us. And help us to, to continue individually to be a blessing to one another as we love one another like you loved us. And thus show that we're your disciples by, by loving one another and keeping your commandments. We'll ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.